welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Ansley Dalbo, founder of What to Know. Ansley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Ansley, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is to give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So, the floor is yours. Thank you. So, as you said, I'm the CEO of What to Know, and my company creates patient education resources for people living with type 2 diabetes and people living with obesity. And over the past seven years, we've had the privilege of interviewing over 200 healthcare professionals in North America. And we work to bring kind of their wisdom and expertise to people living with chronic disease through engaging videos and podcast episodes. So, Nancy, can also before we kind of turn into, you know, maybe I think exploring what patient education really means and kind of the areas you focus on, you know, what first got you into the healthcare industry? So I worked with Walmart Pharmacy uh, for about 11 years on their private label diabetes brand, which is called Relyon. And that experience just created a tremendous passion in me for helping people who live with type 2 diabetes. I don't think we do a great job in the U.S. with treating chronic disease. People often feel overwhelmed by all the information there is out there. They're confused about where to start. And so our mission is really making engaging and relevant health education available to people everywhere. Yeah, so I think that probably then feeds into kind of your approach to patient education. So you know, I'd be very interested to know, you know, like, how do you go about making that content engaging? And I suspect also a lot easier to understand, because you know, I think as you're alluding to, it can be very overwhelming when you get materials, especially when you're probably processing what's happening to you from a healthcare perspective. So it's, you know, how do you go about helping individuals with that process? So we really worked to choose healthcare professionals to interview and, and create content with who understand kind of like what that person is up against that, you know, they're dealing with a lot of different things in their lives, not just the health condition that they have. So we kind of start there. We, we really choose experts who understand that this is just one part of a person's often complicated, messy lives like, like we all have. And then we really work to, to focus on making things actionable. So really education is valuable to the degree that someone can, you know, can watch a video or read an article and say, okay, I'm clear that this is the next step I need to take, or this is the change I'm going to explore making. So, so that's really what we're focused on. How can someone translate important topics about a given condition and turn it into something that they can do in their lives? And do you find um, one particular type of resource more effective than another? You know, just kind of thinking, you know, either written materials or maybe videos or, you know, what are all, and maybe that's also another way to ask, what are all the different types of content that you produce to help with folks understanding what's the information that's available? So that, that's a great point. And that's something we've really learned over the last seven years. I think we started out thinking like, okay, we're really going to exclusively focus on video, but different people learn differently. Uh, and so like for myself, you know, I would always rather listen to a podcast episode than watch a video. So, you know, we, we do create videos, we do 
create podcast episodes often from interviews that we do with healthcare professionals. We do create some written content because that's the way some people prefer to consume, you know, health information. And then we do also have a lot of infographics. So like really trying to turn what can be something complicated into a visual that is often a lot easier to absorb. So we find that, you know, different people want to consume things differently. And so we want to make sure however they want to learn, we're making the information available to them through that way. And in terms of making the information available, you know, kind of what channels do you use to get the information to the hands of patients? So we use every social media channel. We use Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We have done a little bit of TikTok. Um, we're not, <laughs> I think I'm a little too old to be like right on TikTok, but you know, we really... That was one of our insights kind of initially when we first launched Diabetes, What to Know in 2015 was, you know, we want to be where people are. We know they're on Facebook. We know now they're on Instagram. We know they're on Twitter. So we want to fit into their lives as opposed to expecting them to find our website somehow. You know, we, you know, we want to engage with them on their terms. So we offer deliver education through uh, email and we've recently added text messaging again, because we know, you know, that's what people are already doing. So how can we make Make it convenient for them. And I think that's a great point. As you said, it's, you know, every not only is every person going to learn in a different way, but they also want to access the information in a different way. So, it, you know, I, it, I suspect that's also one of the bigger challenges is being able to figure out how that individual wants to get the information in what form and then be able to present it to them that way. Exactly. And, and you said earlier, you know, how do you make sure it's engaging. And I think we do that by looking at the data. So how much of a video does someone watch? How far in an article does someone scroll on our website? And, you know, this takes a lot of humility to say like, oh, we worked so hard on this video and man, people aren't watching very much of it. But we do look at that data very closely. And then very often we will go back to the drawing board and say, okay, you know, our first attempt didn't work. How are we going to modify this to make sure it's something that's engaging to people? So really we kind of rely on our audience to tell us what's doing the job at conveying this information in a way that people want to consume it. And that's ultimately the only marker that matters. Yeah, no, and I think that makes a lot of sense because I think, as you just said, you could be producing what you think is amazing content, but if it's not something that people are actually engaging with, then the value that's probably the point. <laughs> where you think where you were hoping it would be. Exactly. No, that's exactly so kind of thinking about all that, you know, we haven't even really gotten into it, but kind of what types of content are you um, creating? Like kind of what um, areas do you focus on to help provide that education to patients? So we really are focused on kind of a holistic approach to managing disease or managing a given health condition. So from the diabetes perspective, you know, we're obviously focusing on helping people make lifestyle changes. So, you know, choose healthier food options, incorporate more activity into their lives, but we're also really focused on helping them recognize that medication is an important tool for managing diabetes and how can we make it easier for you to remember to take your medication, to understand what it's doing in your body and therefore, you know, encourage people to continue taking it. Because often people with type 2 feel like, you know, my only goal is I want to get off medication. And that's wonderful. And, and some people can do it for a period of time. 
But it's really important for people to recognize being on medication is not a failure. And it's most important to look at like, where are your key numbers? And if you need medication to get your numbers to a safe place, there is no shame in that. You're, you're doing what you need to do to take care of yourself. So often I feel like, you know, our work is as much kind of changing attitudes or opening people's minds, to kind of the reality of what it takes to, to manage a chronic disease. Yeah, and kind of that opening of minds to help kind of pursue or maybe better embrace lifestyle changes you know, is very fascinating. And when you're talking about lifestyle changes, kind of do you have any examples in terms of you know, what type of information you're um, helping to provide on that front? Well, you know, a whole bunch of different things. I mean, number one, I would say for both our type 2 diabetes audience and our, and our audience of folks living with obesity or excess weight, one of the main lifestyle changes we really want to encourage people to make to whatever degree possible is to eat fewer ultra processed foods. And, you know, that is pretty concrete. Like most people can kind of get their heads around it. And so then, you know, we're working with healthcare professionals to, to really help people understand why that's important and also how to do it. So, you know, going cold turkey and saying like, I'm not going to eat any more ultra processed foods ever again, you know, that's not sustainable. So, so how can we help someone make small changes change after change after change that can lead to to transformation over time. Yeah, no, that incremental approach definitely makes sense because as you said, it's, you know, I think the very rare person who can just <laughs> one day wake up and decide, okay, I'm making this major change to my life. For most of us, it's, you know, step by step, understanding that there might be a bit, you know, a step or two backwards along that path too. Exactly. Helping people understand how to think about setbacks is sometimes I think one of the most important things we do because there's such a temptation in our Western world to really embrace all or nothing thinking. Either I'm going to do it perfectly or I'm not going to do it at all. And the more we can help people kind of move away from that and recognize like there are just going to be days where things don't go the way you want them to go. And what do you do next is really where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And then kind of picking up on, you know, the broader area that you're talking about there around, you know, healthy eating or nutrition, I think nutrition doesn't necessarily get all the attention that it probably deserves. So, you know, thinking at the highest level, can you help break down, you know, how nutrition impacts healthcare and also, you know, chronic illness management or, you know, just the overall kind of healthcare setting? So, you know, I think there's a profound connection between nutrition and health. And I think most people kind of intuitively understand that. I think it was um, Hippocrates in 440 BC who said, you know, let food be thy medicine. And there are there is definitely a lot of evidence, many studies that show that certain eating patterns like the Mediterranean diet or certain versions of the DASH diet, you know, they can improve a range of risk factors for chronic disease. They can reduce long-term weight gain. And they're also associated kind of with lower risk of clinical events. So I was a little surprised recently when uh, Dr. Robert Califf, he's the director of the FDA, he recently referred to kind of diet-related disease. And that really underscores how linked kind of nutrition and health are. Having said that, uh, and I am certainly very passionate about nutrition, I do just want to underscore like diabetes, uh, obesity, those are complex conditions, which we still have a lot more to learn about. So I don't want to perpetuate the stigma that so often accompanies those conditions that says like, you know, poor choices and unhealthy behaviors are what cause obesity and diabetes. So that view really oversimplifies these very complex biological conditions and kind of overlooks things like genetics or 
medications that can cause weight gain or cause disease, or things like, you know, a person's socioeconomic status or their environment, all of those things can, can lead to disease. So nutrition is fundamental for good health, but it's also one part of kind of a complex picture when it comes to who develops chronic disease. Yeah. And kind of, you know, looking at that complex picture, as you said, you know, can understanding kind of the nutrition that an individual is getting or able to obtain also help to, you know, I, I would say probably better inform, you know, maybe some of those other factors that you were just mentioning? Yes, I, I do think so. I mean, I, I do think kind of, you know, where a person is currently based on their environment, where they live, what foods are accessible. You know, I, I'm always amazed, you know, when we get questions from people with type two saying, you know, either I live an hour away from a grocery store or I'm a truck driver and I don't have a way really to, to store healthy foods. People are up against some pretty significant environmental challenges when it comes to making healthy choices. So I think the more clinicians, you know, doctors, dietitians can kind of recognize where someone is and what they're up against. And we can really start making specific recommendations that can help them overcome the hurdles that that may be in the way of making the choices they want to make. No, and kind of as you said, the being able to kind of suss out all those hurdles, you know, how do you when you obtain that, how does that impact your delivery of information about you know the you know the nutritional choices or lifestyle kind of changes that are possible, kind of connecting it back to part of our earlier conversation? Well, you know, I think our job, because, you know, we're we're talking to a lot of people at once, our job is to ask healthcare professionals, you know, to, to answer specific questions from people, but try to keep it broad enough so that people can think about, okay, how does this apply to, to my unique situation? Because the truth is, you know, good health and nutrition is, is really kind of much more about broad strokes. The Mediterranean diet, you know, like we know you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, healthy fats, lean protein, whole grains. Those are broad kind of guidelines that people can then figure out based on their unique situation, their food preferences, how far away they live from a grocery store. They can kind of figure out how does this apply to me? And that's where really working one-on-one with a dietitian or or another clinician can make a big difference for people in terms of being able to, to make healthy choices. Yeah, kind of, I think, as you're suggesting, it's going to lead them into that personalized discussion and personalized decision-making process. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Ansley Dalbo of What to Know. We've been talking about patient education and now kind of the importance of nutrition. And Ansley, you're just mentioning, you know, the Mediterranean diet, you know, as an example of, you know, it sounds like the fundamentals in there are, if you break it apart, do lead you towards good nutrition. But I guess that kind of also leads into a direction of, you know, how do like fad diets or, you know, other, you know, particular avenues for nutrition that maybe strike a, a viral cord in media impact the ability to deliver helpful information about nutrition? Yeah, so th- that's a great question. Before we talk about fad diets, I, I, there was a recent paper by Dr. Mozafarian out of Tufts. And, and what he said really stuck with me. Essentially, what he said is that an eating pattern that's cardioprotective or, you know, that leads to good health is much more characterized by the healthy food that it includes rather than specific items that are to be avoided. And I think if we want to take that as a philosophy of like, you know, why fad diets aren't great, you know, it's because it's, it's a much bigger picture, you know, it's, 
it's about a lifestyle that prioritizes foods that nourish our bodies rather than like kind of very simplistically like labeling foods as good or bad. So fad diets are eating approaches that like, you know, usually claim crazy results like fast weight loss, you know, lose this number of pounds in a certain time frame, which, you know, we all know isn't realistic. But they are also usually plans that tend to be pretty restrictive, like don't eat these foods or only eat this food group. And those just really aren't sustainable over the long run. So, you know, I think the classic fad diet would be something like the, the grapefruit diet or the cabbage soup diet something that really like no one can stick to over the long run and that will lead to only weight loss in the short term. And they lead to weight loss because there's so few foods you can eat that you're naturally just going to be eating fewer calories, but you're not really learning anything about kind of like fueling your body with, with nourishing foods. And, and those approaches can often lead to kind of disordered thinking about food, which really has a, a big cost over the long term. Yeah. Kind of continuing down that path, you know, as you said, if the, the if fad diet is very restrictive, you know, it sounds like then you're probably also not getting the full scope of, um, you know, nu uh, nutritional components or elements that you need to kind of fuel sustainable um, improvement and life and lifestyle improvement in the long term. Yeah, you know, you said how do, how do fad diets kind of lead to misconceptions about nutrition? Really, the way they do that is by focusing on like you know, this nutrient or this food group is good or bad. And, you know, that's just like really not the way, you know, nutrition, that's not reflective of what we understand about nutrition today. You know, we understand it is about so much more than just like single, you know, food groups. We've kind of definitely moved away from kind of like the, the low fat eating approach or even the low carb eating approach. We understand it's much more about the quality of food, like the variety of your diet, how balanced your meals are. And, you know, kind of the, are you eating mindfully? Are you eating with friends and family? You know, that it even kind of even goes beyond the spe specific nutrient value of a given meal. And you just use a very interesting term of eating mindfully. Um, so could you help unpack that a little bit more? Cause I'd be very interested to know like what that fully encompasses. Well, I think, you know, in today's world and, and I'm guilty of it too, you know, we eat while we're doing something else. We eat while we're on our phones or we eat while we're watching TV, we eat in the car and we're kind of like missing out on the opportunity to like really enjoy the food we're eating. So, you know, I think sometimes, you know, when, when we talk a lot in our materials about emotional eating, because a lot of people with diabetes or obesity, you know, say that they struggle with emotional eating. And that comes from that kind of like black or white, like that good or bad thinking, like I'm, I never can have a piece of cake. And so sometimes I'll, you know, just say, oh, you know, forget it. I'm just going to go ahead and eat this piece of cake and I'm going to eat it as fast as I can because I feel guilty about it. And what we would encourage is, you know, like build treats into your meal plan. You know, if, you know, for someone's birthday, if you want to have a piece of cake, like sit down and enjoy that piece of cake, like really taste the flavors, enjoy every aspect of eating it. And that really, it builds trust in yourself. And it, and it also reminds you like, you know, this isn't about deprivation. This is about adding more healthful foods into your diet rather than focusing on what you can't have. So, so 
to answer your question, you know, mindful eating is, is really about like paying attention to what we're eating while we're eating it, focusing on flavor and really enjoying the experience, making food the source of kind of joy that it should be rather than just as simple as like, you know, it has this many carbs, it has this much fat, et cetera. Yeah. So it sounds like it's really, you know, basically stop, take a moment and focus on what you're doing at that particular moment. And I think, as you said, take, which allows you to kind of slow down and, really, in, again, to repeat what you said, to enjoy what you're doing and enjoy you know, the experience as opposed to just rushing through it off to the next activity. That's perfectly said, yes. Have you encountered any particular ways or, or made a particular but kind of effective means of communicating to, to help people understand the importance of doing that and to be able to drive um, you know, effective behavioral change to, to do that? And you know, and then kind of what feedback do you get as people start making that shift? So first part of your question, you know, I think, again, we're all about gradual, small change, choosing one thing. So, you know, what we typically encourage people is, you know, choose a meal, you know, a meal where you're not super busy. So usually not breakfast or lunch, but maybe it's dinner and, you know, focus on sitting down at the table, ideally with friends or family members and, and making it an experience, you know, so really tasting the food, really enjoying the company, start there. And maybe that doesn't happen every night. Maybe that happens three nights a week. You know, people got, people have crazy lives, but, but really starting with that, or maybe, you know, if there's a meal where you're just eating by yourself, maybe it's lunch, you know, really focus on sitting down at the table, tasting the foods and enjoying it that way. And when we break it down that way, A, it feels more doable, but B, people really do report how often it is that they don't even really taste the food that they're eating because their their minds are elsewhere or they're distracted looking at a device or they're just thinking about the next thing. And so, you know, that really helps people pay attention to like, you know, do I enjoy this food? Does it feel nourishing to my body? And that can really be a really important foundation for change. Yeah. And I think I kind of, as you just said, it's, you know, once you actually then start to focus, you actually get to see the impact and, you know, I really liked what you just said of, you know, figuring out, do I actually enjoy, enjoy this? Is it something I actually want to, that I like, probably would go hand in hand with that keep eating, or do I need to find a, you know, a shift or a modification? So it's something that will encourage me not to speed through it, but actually sit and savor and, you know, um, really feel the experience. One psychologist that we spoke to, uh, he said something that has, this was like six years ago, but he, it has always resonated with me. He was like, if you're having a treat, it's the first couple of bites that taste the best. And he was like, and when someone is really being mindful, they can notice that when they get like halfway through, it's like, yeah, I'm kind of good. You know, you're, you're giving yourself time for your satiety um, feelings to kick in, like, oh, I feel full, I've had enough. Whereas if we kind of go with that mindless, you know, fork to mouth emotion, it's easy to eat everything on our plate and then look down and be like, I don't remember eating any of this. So it is a it is a really nice way to kind of get back in touch with, you know, the experience of eating, the, the feeling of enjoyment and just paying attention to what we're doing. Yeah, I, it kind of, so kind of, as you said, that that statement really stuck with you. So, you know, as you've gone and developed and learned more about nutrition or kind of all the interconnected pieces that you've been looking on, you know, what other pieces of information have been most surprising to you or have just, you know, kind of stuck with you the most? 
I think the 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 thing that has stuck with me the most, and I'm gonna bring it up again, is ultra processed foods and the degree to which they cause weight gain, they cause disease. I, I think it's so easy for conversations about nutrition to get lost in carbs versus fat versus protein. And really like the strongest data we have, one of the best studies done by the NIH in the last couple of years shows that regardless of the nutritional composition of a meal, whether it was carbs, fat, or, or protein, whether a meal centered on ultra processed foods or not was the number one thing that caused weight gain because simply people ate more quickly, not because they said they enjoyed the food more, but just because they ate more quickly. So that to me was a, was a kind of an eye opener. I, you know, I, I think it's just, again, as I said, really easy to get lost in, is it carbs? Is it fat? Whatever. When really, I think, you know, reprioritizing whole foods, that that's the key. Yeah, and I probably should have level set this back when you first mentioned ultra processed foods, but what is the definition of an of an ultra processed food? You know, it's it's things like um, it's things like chips, cookies, anything in a kind of in a bag or or you know in a container with a with a nutrition facts label. So things like canned beans, those would be processed foods, but not ultra processed foods. But you know, things like as I said, chips, cookies. Anything in a bag with a nutrition facts label, that is going to be an ultra processed food. And that includes things like bagels in a, you know, in a, in a container, like bread can be ultra processed if it has a lot of preservatives, things like turkey bacon, like, you know, that, that can be ultra processed. So really it is trying to get it back to like the basic components of the foods themselves. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like a shorthand is like, if you're looking at the label and there's a lot of. <laughs> like ingredients that you have no idea what it is, that's probably a, a decent hint that it's very processed. That's perfectly said. Yes, exactly. The longer the ingredient list, generally, the more processed it is. Yes. Yeah, no, and I, th and I think that's a great point. So, you know, if you're looking at something, unless it's an extremely complex dish where you have a lot of ingredients, if the, if the list of you know, components is getting pretty long. It's not going to be a good sign that it's, you know, I think as you said, like a whole, a whole food where it's, um, you know, you know exactly where everything came from. And even though something small, like, you know, like buying the, the yogurts in the yogurt aisle that, that are sweetened, that is just so, so much less helpful than buying, for example, plain yogurt and adding honey and fruit yourself. You know, it, the difference between that is, is just really significant. So the more we can break it down to kind of like the component pieces of, of a meal, the better off we are. Yeah. And, and, I, and to that point, it's, you know, sometimes it can just be very difficult to even find those foods because it's, you know, maybe they're hidden on the shelf or just not even available at all. That is exactly right. And, you know, I, I always think about like kind of the breakfast buffet at a given hotel. It's virtually impossible to find like an unprocessed food at, at that breakfast buffet other than fruit. You know, you're going to have muffins, you're going to have cereal, you're going to have, you know, sweetened yogurt. And that is really one of the true challenges to healthy eating today is just a, the lack of healthy unprocessed food that's widely available. Yeah. So Unfortunately, we're almost out of out of time. So you know, before we do have to part, you know, I want to ask one final question, which is, you know, thinking about nutrition and you know, the interconnection with healthcare. What's the biggest point that you want people to remember and walk away with? 
The biggest point that I that I would want people to focus on is understanding that nutrition is is fundamental for good health. We should be incorporating it more into our healthcare system currently. You know, our company is doing a partnership right now with with Remedy, which is a digital health company trying to create nutrition modules that are easy for clinicians to help patients with at the point of care. But I also want to stress that nutrition is just one component of disease management. So if you have a, a condition like diabetes or obesity, just recognizing that diet alone may not be enough to kind of get you where you need to go. And there is no shame in that. That's just kind of the nature of the way our bodies work. Yeah, no, I think that kind of whole whole approach and understanding all the interconnections is very important. But as I said, believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest, Ansley Dal- Dalbo, for a great conversation today. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. 